A reading from Mark, and you can find this in the bulletin if you have one. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David, call, David, himself, calls, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. All right. For those that don't know me, I am David Michael Smingy, son of David C. Smingy and father of David Perrin Smingy. Um, I serve in diaconal roles primarily in a couple ministries in Dearborn. And um, as a side gig, I am a primary care physician serving at three med schools and I teach doctors how to be doctors and all that. But I hope by the end of this sermon, um, you all will recognize why I consider pretty much all of that stuff, all my academic achievement, all of my engineering, all my medicine, all that stuff, just garbage for the sake of knowing and being known by Christ, okay? And I want to walk through that, and I think I'm grateful for this passage because I'm excited to talk about how God has changed me, and I hope it can change you. So how do we want to be seen before other people? And more importantly, what will be like before God? And what do we want that to look like? Um, we talk a lot about self-image, how we see ourselves, how others see us, and how others want to, how we want others to see us. Um, and if you don't believe that, a lot of you came here while wearing clothes, and odds are those were picked out either by yourself or by somebody who cares about you. Britta has told me I am not allowed to wear cargo pants and a sweatshirt in front of you all, and she said the same thing at our wedding. So, uh, for good reason, we dress up and look, and we make ourselves presentable, right? Um, for example, if I came in here and I was disheveled, if I smelled not great, um, and I didn't really have myself put together, and I was bags and rides or something, like, I would hope that Aaron would come up in front of me and say, hey, like, David, like, you, you all right, man, you know? I'd be like, well, maybe not. Like, I'd hope he'd come to me and try and say, this person probably shouldn't preach right now. Um, and he'd probably say, well, look, I prepared a three-point sermon for the whole thing anyway, and I'll cover it, because you talk too fast. Um... But the point is, we have these images that matter. Um, we can do it out of respect, we can do it out of kindness, courtesy, dignity. Sometimes it's just nice to look nice, or so I'm told. Um, but sometimes our images of how we identify ourselves become more important than the virtues behind them. Uh, we put on this outer shell of clothes to deceive ourselves and deceive other people. And we got a lot of idioms about this, in fact. So Jesus uses one, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, like false prophets will come looking like wolves in sheep's clothing. And that kind of begs the question, well, how did they get the sheep's clothing in the first place? And who was devoured to make that happen? So in our first part of our text, Jesus is finishing up a conversation with religious leaders and intellectuals of his day. And preceding our text, Jesus is on the third day of Holy Week. He's about to get crucified about three or four days from that. And he's in this temple. 
and he's just been questioned by all these religious people, smart people of the day, and they've done their best to trap him, not successful, and frankly, their public image is being ruined. Like, these people who are supposed to know all these things are getting essentially destroyed, like, dusting off the, the place they're standing by Jesus. And I can imagine just the envy brewing in the room. Uh, nobody dares ask my question. But, like, were the religious leaders and people always like this way? Like, how do you make a Pharisee? Like, how do you make a scribe? Did they grow up, like, thinking they were just going to be jerks to Jesus? Like, how does that even happen? What can we do to prevent that from happening? I'm a preventive medicine doctor. I have to think about it. How do we get here? Like, part of my job is root cause analysis. I just had to think about it. So if I got some smart people, and I work with people who are smart their whole lives, I've been told I'm a smart person my entire life. Uh, people have been telling me, as long as I remember, it's my identity or was my identity. And even now, I can't go places without somebody, probably out of kindness, like mentioning, like, hey, he's a doctor. Doctor, you know, Smingy. Uh, and an engineer sometimes, too. And I do accounting. Um, and I and shoot lightning from my eyes and all that else, too. But I think those are well-intentioned, but there's definitely consequences to being told that your whole life, okay? And I'm speaking to parents and friends and people here, too. Like, it can sometimes really hurt, like, being told this, and I'll kind of walk through that. So I had this moment with my dad. Okay, you can justify this, all right? And I remember this. I don't know how well he remembers it. That's fine if he doesn't. But I, I had some high school homework or math homework or something I needed to do. I'd go down to his office in the basement. He's, he was very intentional about being present at home all the time with his work, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, but I go down to his office, and I'm like, hey, I got some math homework or something. And he just looks at me, and he says, like, Mike? I can't help you with this homework. I don't know what this is anymore. <laughs> You're on your own, son. And like, I imagine in that moment as a parent, I hope to have that with parent, you know, where you have this beautiful moment as a father is looking at his kid and his kid's exceeding him at something. The kid's finally grown up, you know? He doesn't need me to do his math homework anymore. And that's a beautiful moment. And then on the other hand, like Satan just is right there too in these beautiful moments. And what did he do? What did he start doing in me? Any guesses? What's it like as a teenage kid to have your dad say you're smarter than me? That's something. Like, it was the start of, like, that glass whatever that is, the spirit of my rebellion finally getting a piece or a crack in it. You know, where it's like telling a teenage kid that you're smarter than your parents. Like, that's what every teenager starts to think at some point. And I think it eventually leads or led to, and a lot of different things happen, but there are definitely moments in my life that came to a point where, like, I think my dad and mom were ready to throw me out of the street, you know? Like, I, they love me, okay? And, like, I know you'd never do it, but I know there were times when I certainly was a lot more rebellious and I need forgiveness in that. And I really think that, like, the reason, as I look at the moments I was rebellious, the reason I came back, like, was because of things like God commanded me to love and honor my parents, right? Anybody know the second half of that commandment, who are teenagers? Honor your father and mother so that... Yeah, it may go well with you. Essentially, um, it's, uh, I missed it. Um, honor your father and mother so it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. God's words, not mine. All right? But that's how rebellion starts. And that's how my stuff starts. So fast forward, I go to undergraduate. I take the hardest courses because I can. I start destroying people on exams. 
Um, I'm, I know where I rank in the class. I take a class called Palmer Rheology, okay, just for fun. It's the study of plastics. Like, you ever wonder why batter kind of goes up a, uh, the, the beater when you're spinning it, or water doesn't? Like, that's the study of what it is. It's non-Newtonian fluid mechanics, piece of cake. One day, professor comes over, starts passing out homework. Okay, I'm in a room full of chemical engineers who should know this stuff, and the person who wrote the book on pulmonology is my teacher. Passes out her homework, just kind of mad about something. She hands all the homework out and says, well, all y'all got it wrong, except David. He's not even a chemical engineer. What are you all doing? <laughs> like, and the pride grows, doesn't it? So when I get to med school, I'm surrounded by people who only know unbroken academic success. I remember during orientation week, I'm sitting there, and like this woman comes up to me and says, like, you know, how's it going? I'm like, oh, it's pretty good, you know. And a classmate, and she's like, where'd you go to school? I went to Michigan Tech, and she's like, well, I don't know, it's Michigan. I think you get destroyed here, you know. <laughs> like Michigan Tech probably didn't prepare you well for medical school. And I'm like, ouch. Also, you're on, get destroyed, get wrecked. So, you know, and I'll destroy you. And there was no spirit of kindness in that moment. It was all about how do I crush people with what I know? I'll destroy you. We compete on who is smarter because we've been told that since we're young, and that's what we are. So everywhere I went, it was about being smarter than other people. It wasn't about using our talents to help people. It was about tearing others down, proving to them that they weren't smarter than me. In med school, Half the class finally finds out for the first time in my life that they're below average. And some people aren't used to that. It really hurts them. Their whole identity is put into unbroken success, and you tell these people, look, now you're below average. And a lot of people end up doing the unthinkable thing. Students really struggle with that. And every year we hear students who kill themselves because of these ridiculous expectations we have on ourselves. People who wanted to be doctors who said, I want to help people. That's why I went to med school. It's exiling to start to think that you're like below average the first time and like you go to your friends to try and ask for help and like but their identity of you is a smart person and then to go to them and say I'm a smart person but I'm dumb like it really hurts. <laughs> you have a hard time being told that and we have to value our outside being smart. I suspect that's something that's like happening in the Pharisees here and now it's finally time for Jesus to ask them a question and what does Jesus have to say to them? He says, well, how is it that the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? David himself says in the Holy Spirit, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And a large crowd enjoyed listening to him. How do you start to answer that question? Not necessarily rhetorical, but... This is a reference to Psalm 110, which is a Messianic Psalm. In our English translation, it uses the words Lord, because English is imperfect. Um, said to my Lord, that can be confusing. In your handout, I put out which Lord they're referring to. The first Lord is Yahweh, which is the proper name of God. Second name is Lord, is like a master. So the question, as best I understand it, is uh, you got King David, greatest king, all Israel. Pharisees want good old days back. David's going to come back, hopefully not quite. But at least when the Messiah comes back, it'll be like the good days of David and hopefully increase the power of the Pharisees too while we're at it. But essentially the question here is, God, the proper name of God, God says to my master, my Lord, is what David is saying, sit at my right hand. So David is one saying these things in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the second Lord refers to somebody who isn't David, who is Lord over David, King David, the greatest king's master. So you have a greater-than-him attitude. 
So the Pharisees had problems with this because, like, usually the son is lesser than the father. And I imagine they're, think about their inheritance, their ancestry, all these things that they depended on. Um, but they have a hard time reconciling that, like, the Messiah will be greater than King David, but here he is quite distinctly saying that. The Pharisees are and identify as sons of Abraham. And in a parallel passage in John 8, Jesus' question about where he comes from. And Jesus answers them, or says to them, uh, who are your parents? And the Pharisees say, well, Abraham's our father. And he says back to them, if you're Abraham's kids, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. And he goes on to establish in that message that the Messiah is the son of God, even beyond humans, and he is God's son. And he points out, like, I am the returned, I am the Messiah, I am the son of God. And for those things, they start using that as a charge against him later to kill him. So the truth here, too, like, if you want to spend a lot of time thinking about this question in Psalm 10, it baked my noodle for weeks, and I still don't think I really understand it. Um, but we use Psalm 110 uh, to draw out a lot of truths. In fact, a lot of it forms the basis of the Apostles' Creed. So one statement, it says in the Apostles' Creed, uh, pause for a second. Um, essentially, Christ is coming back. Where is he seated now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will do what? I'll come again to judge the living and the dead. And that's partially where we get that statement from. So Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And he says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. And the Pharisees don't want that. They don't want Jesus as their Lord or Messiah. And internally, they probably have some pride in their identities and position and outwardly society to help them get there. And Satan has won these people over. But does it have to look that way? Like, do intellectuals have to be destroyed by Satan or captured? And probably not. Now, I think if the intellectual allows it, knowing God is in control and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father can be very freeing. If Christ is my king, it is finally liberating from this sin of pride and competitive envy. I've been told all my life I'm smart, should have the answers, that I should be my own king. But the deeper truth is that I don't have to have all these answers that I shouldn't be king. Only Christ is king. He is the one who is truly all-knowing, all-powerful, all-righteous, and it's okay. Be free from the slavery of having to know everything all the time when people ask you questions. I look forward to an eternity where I can finally learn from Christ and be discipled by him forever, just for fun, like for the sake of learning how things work and goodness, not to outsmart and crush people. Come Jesus. So Christ is reigning now, visually absent, unseen. He is the greatest seer who sees everything in all of us. And we're to remain loyal to him while we don't see. Because we don't, we get to see what happens next in the text and the consequences of not having Christ as your Lord. So, section 2, Mark 12, 38, 40. In his teaching, he's saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like personal greetings in the marketplaces and seats of honor in the synagogues, places of honor at the banquets, who devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearances, offer long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So beware. Beware, he says. There should be like a sign, beware of Pharisee, like beware of Gog. Like you know what happens, you put your hand in there, you lose your hand or something, but beware of Pharisees. So I've had the opportunity in this passage to wear long robes. When was that? When do we wear long robes now? 
Graduation, right? They're ridiculous. They're like giant prayer shawls, I think was the idea, you know? Like, we all wear these ridiculous gowns. Britta skipped graduation because she said it was silly, and she's probably right. But we put on these ridiculous gowns to look cool. Um, even in med school, uh, we wear these short white coats, which are basically humiliating. They go up to, like, I had one friend describe it as barely length here, you know? <laughs> like, uh, and the goal is to get a long coat by the end of it and look cool and have, like, a flashy coat that, like, blows in the wind like a cape behind you. Um, by the time you're done with med school, the goal is you want one by, like, goes down to the floor. It's definitely our outward appearance. Um, I have had people greet me at a marketplace, like Costco or, like, well, Meyer or something. Like, people really recognize me. I did, someone who saw me on, I was on TV once, like, for Fox News, like, for a local, and they're like, yeah, I saw you on Fox News. I'm like, oh, my gosh, all right, great. I just want my sandwich, man. Um, it's kind of fun, though. People get out of my way when I wear a white coat in the hospital. People get doors for me. People like the title of doctor. Like, there's people who will do ridiculous things to try and just get the title of being called a doctor, which is really philosophically, doctor just means someone who is Latin for to teach, like a teacher. So if I can pause for a moment and make a quick observation, too. I know parents want to be parents of doctors, okay? And I feel that because my son came to me, and he said he wants to be an entomologist, which is a bug studier. And he's five. And I'm like, son... I really hope this is a phase. <laughs> I don't want you to grow up to be a bug studier. It's gross. You don't even like real bugs. Even the car on the way here, the kid reminded me. He's like, Dada, I want to study bugs and be a bug teacher. And I'm like, no, no, you don't. <laughs> but like, how much do I lean into that? He's five. Kids change. But like, it's his interest right now. And like, there's a part of me that's like, I don't want my kid to be a bug studier. I want my kid to be a doctor, you know, a healer, the most prestigious position possible, engineer would be fine too, <laughs> or a lawyer, or something important, or play for the lions, God help him. <laughs> uh, I just want to pause for a moment and acknowledge that too, as you think about what you're hoping for your kids. And I think it's good to hope for you, because you should encourage your kids to be the best that they can be, and you should encourage your kid to be honoring and your God with their talents, right? But there's, we all know that there are those parents, not necessarily us, but those parents that push a kid to be things that they ought not to be, just for the sake of appearances. We do this. And I wonder, if I was a Jewish mother, would I encourage my kid to be a scribe or a Pharisee, to be greeted in the marketplaces and honored? Maybe. But my hope and prayer for him at night, just to like still my own heart, what I do hope for him, is that whatever he does, in word or deed, he does it for the glory of God. And I want to see him become a disciple of Christ before everything else. Was well, then he's not wrapped up in some stupid academic thing that we do as humans. We made up the title doctor. God gave the title disciple. So, I've had a lot of miserable people who've come into medical school or residency because their parents would be disappointed if they were anything else. And by the time they get through med school, they're so indebted and enslaved to the system that we call medical school that the only way to pay it back is to be a doctor which they wouldn't want in the first place. But it's what you do when you're a smart kid. I've had the best seats. Like, literally, I went to a Pistons game. I had great seats, you know, as a doctor. A whole group of us went. And I took people with me because it was fun. Um, even in the clinic, Pistons games are pretty cheap right now, okay? But 
even a clinic, I find myself like, where do I sit in a room? And like, people get out of my way so I can sit different places. I usually try and sit in a trash can just to make fun of that. Um, and I think in general, when a doctor comes to church too, like we're treated pretty differently. I was in a sermon once and the pastor's preaching about finances and he said, we got a few doctors in the audience, you know? He has this like big easel thing next to him. And I'm like, okay, what's gonna happen next? I know it's gonna happen next. And he's like, well, all doctors' salary is about yay much. They make about this much money. And if you tie that much money, the church will have this much money. Think of what we could do with all this money. I left that church. <laughs> I don't want to be seen as an ATM, but that's unfortunately, I think, some perception too. So, long robes, dangerous, okay, for us and our kids. But we still have talents and we should still use them. So, the line I haven't addressed is how do they devour widows' houses? What does that look like, okay? How do long robed people devour widows? Well, let's get to that. Next section. So Jesus sits down opposite of the treasury, looks at where people are putting in tons of money, starts watching people putting money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large amounts. And the poor widow comes up, puts in two leptic coins, okay, which is like less than a percent of a day's wage. And he calls his disciples to him, people following around, learning. Truly I say to you, this widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, puts in all she owns and all she had to live on. And I think conventionally, as I think about this passage, I was taught, like, look, here's a widow who's poor, and she gives everything she has, and it's the greatest tithe ever. And those are true things. It is probably the greatest tithe ever given in the history of humanity, recorded for all of eternity in God's word. It's where we get the phrase, like, my two cents, two coins, right? Like, we do derive things from this moment. But sometimes I think we take that passage and we use it to justify taking from people who, I mean, just be careful here. So she's poor, has nothing, still gives to the church. Great, beautiful thing to do. Shouldn't you? She wants to be reigned unseen in a way, but God sees her and honor her. But who's watching her, right? Jesus. God, how does she give out of her poverty? How does she get her money? Who knows? Wasn't much, basically spare change. What's she wearing? Probably not something dignified or glorified. And then I want to kind of leave it there on the widow and then turn it into the second people in this story that I don't think get as much attention as the widow does. So Jesus and Mark, I think, Mark through the Holy Spirit and Christ put these stories very next to each other for a reason. And I want to kind of elucidate that this, I think, is a case in point of devouring widows' houses. And I'm going to point that out to you. So who's watching the people putting in money in the treasury right now? People who love piles of money. How do they give? Out of their surplus? Their extra? Like when you give tithes, I really hope that it's not out of your surplus. Like I hope it actually kind of hurts to give a tithe. That should be a sacrifice. What are they giving? Essentially, their spare change. And how did they get their money? How did the rich get money here, right? And it might be from devouring widows. The temple is supposed to care for widows, right? Wasn't it? Why is this woman so poor with the treasury so rich? Where exactly do these fine robes that they wear come from? 
I've bought a suit before for like a wedding and it wasn't cheap. I had to rent it. <laughs> and mine wasn't handmade. So how does this look kind of today, bringing it into this context? And this kind of personal for me too. I'll tell you. So I was trained at a hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and one day I'm looking for some things to read about, and I come across this article through a mentor of mine, and it's titled, The Nonprofit Hospital That Makes Millions Owns a Collection Agency and Relentlessly Sues the Poor. And that's the title. I'll repeat it again. Nonprofit Hospital Makes Millions Owns a Collection Agency and Relentlessly Sues the Poor. That is not good PR for your hospital. <laughs> And I look at the picture of the hospital, and it's where I trained as a student. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, I should probably read the rest of this article. So I'm intrigued. And the story highlights a woman who went to the hospital, and for a two-night stay, cost her what? How much was it? It was 2007. Any ideas? Put a number in your head. Two nights in the hospital. 12,000 bucks, okay? Woman makes $12 an hour. <laughs> So even just the basic math, like a thousand hours of work, it's half a year wages for two nights. So, hospital expects her to pay her bill. It's common thought that medical debt will never really hurt you, doesn't have interest, so you don't really need to pay it, but you sort of have to pay it. Or if you go among my patients, they, some still believe, if you go to the emergency room that it's free, because like, they have to treat you no matter what, but then they bill you afterwards, and they have to treat you regardless of pay. And I think those are great things to have, but our system's broken. I'm going to show you right now, because those things aren't entirely true. So the hospital takes this woman to court, where long-robe judges look at the bill from the hospital, and the long-robe physicians, and the long-robe hospital MBAs, and the long-robe lawyer talks to the long-robe judge. And after tacking on fees for both of their services, the woman now owes more, and now it's interest-bearing, meaning that if she doesn't pay it, it just gets worse. And the reporter then, a few years later, asked her, well, how much, 12 years later, how much is that $12,000 bill worth now? Like $33,000? <laughs> just after all these people who I know when they went to law school, med school, engineering school, MBA school, what do we say in our interest exams? I want to help people. And because they're legally able to do this, they garnish her wages, and it means wherever she goes to work now forever, that's legal entity, you can still do stuff under the table, but anything that wants to be legal and reputable, the hospital is entitled to her wages, usually about a 10% or 20% portion. What are the chances that somebody who makes 12,000 a year or 24,000 a year is gonna pay a $33,000 bill when they're 63 years old? Zero, two nights. She'll be paying it the rest of her life the reporter looks at this and says, well, surely this is a one-off event. It's happening to hundreds of people in the clinics, in that hospital system, specifically 8,300 lawsuits in about four years. And the best part, like you can't make it up because it's just so evil, um, is that the majority of the people that they're suing and taking to court over income that the hospital feels entitled to from the patients that they saw, and we should make, a, we should make a fair wage. Okay, fair, emphasis fair. But the majority of the people that the hospital is suing are their own employees who have used their hospital services. And it's nonprofits. Like, come on. <laughs> so, so who gets money at the end of the day? I mean, lawyers in long robes who don't stop to ask if what they were doing was wrong, as long as it's legal. 
doctors in long robes who didn't stop to ask. The patient really needed to stay and have those tests, but we might get sued and it's easier just to admit that person and do the tests anyway. I don't want to think about how much hard work I need. I don't want to accept liability for this person. Just admit them. Pharmacists, long robes, who make really <laughs> probably medications that they know are less expensive, but they get kickback, they use the other ones. Engineers in long robes who want to make equipment overwhelmingly profitable because they have patents and people they want to appease. MBAs in long robes who actually know what the prices of things are, but do their best to obfuscate it and make it impossible to know what things actually cost in medicine. But they do know. Scribes and Pharisees in the treasury who take advantage of others to make their long robes. This widow's devoured. Are you sure you want your kids to grow up to be engineers, doctors, and lawyers? What's the harm? So I, I paint a bad picture of medicine, and like, that's just what I work with every day. So please pray for me as I try and help redeem medicine. I think engineering, medicine, legal systems, like, I don't think that they're beyond redemption. Is anything beyond God redemption? No, I don't think so. But it's hard work to do it and do it well and do it right. So people, I just want to point out too, think that this Hippocratic oath that we take, like I think oaths are important, like creeds are important, you should memorize the Apostle Creed if you haven't, but the Hippocratic oath has this phrase, do no harm in it, and certainly this person was harmed, I would argue, from their two-night stay. Um, but it actually doesn't have that phrase in it, the do no harm, it's not in the Hippocratic oath, just FYI. As an aside, it does have phrases like, I will not give a lethal drug to anybody or advise such a plan, and I will not give a woman an ability to cause an abortion. That is in the Hippocratic Oath, the original one. We don't say that one anymore. Um, almost every med school has some secular variation of that oath that nobody bothers to memorize. But I think the most important part of the oath, okay, Hippocratic Oath, is the first line in it. And Hippocrates knew what he was doing, and I want you to listen and catch it. And it's not in any modern oaths, but it's by far, I'd argue, the most important. I swear, it starts this way, by Apollo the physician, Aesculapius, Hagia, Pansia, and all the other gods and goddesses is my witness that according to my building judgment, I'll keep this oath and this honor contract. Now, I don't believe in Apollos or all those other ones, but I do believe in the one Lord God above everything else. And I think it's important to have that in mind as a physician or anybody in any position that at the end of the day, like, I swear by God, like, I will do my work and honor God and glorify God with what he's given me. That's the oath I want to take, and for the most part, did. Hippocrates knew that physicians who are accountable to themselves, their own masters, they couldn't be trusted, and instead, he opens it up very plainly. Physicians ought to be accountable to God for what they do. What kind of doctor do patients want? Like, if you had your choice between two doctors, all things equal, do you want the one that is accountable to themselves and their own master at the end of the day? Or do you want the one that says, like, no, the decisions I make and do, God's going to hold me accountable for at the end of the day in judgment? Which doctor do you pick? I'll leave it up to you. So going back to the earlier point, the Psalm 110 phrase, what Christ starts with, and if you go in Psalm 110, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, Make his enemies his footstool. And, and the Apostles' Creed will come again to judge the living and the dead. I think that is a really, really takeaway important point from this. So, when you think you see an unseen widow about to devour, be devoured, I want you to put your two cents in and stop what injustice you might be seeing. And when you think you see anyone about to be devoured, you put your two cents in. Help that person find their identity in Christ alone. And Christ alone is our ruler who's been given all power, all authority in heaven and earth. It's our duty to go and make disciples of all peoples, 
free them from their identities that aren't Christ and to put them in Christ. And as for those of you in the public eye, let your good deeds shine before men in such a way that you may see them and glorify your Father, that they may see them and glorify your Father in heaven and not you. So until Christ comes, our knowledge, our wisdom, our rebellions, our thoughts, our deeds, my medical degree, my engineering degree, my post-nominal letters, all garbage compared to the passing knowledge of knowing and being found in Christ and to be found in him clothed in his righteousness, in his long robes, really the only ones that I want, and made back into his image. So, let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that you are redeeming and making all things new, and we need newness. We have these old robes that come at ridiculous costs, and like they bring shame to us, and we hide ourselves in shame, and we just want to be like you, but that's been corrupted. Father, redeem us. Help us see ourselves as you see us, as a beloved child forever who will learn from you and grow with you and be discipled by you for all eternity. Help us find our lost brothers and sisters and those who've been hurt by injustice and bring them justice. Help those who are in positions of power to serve justly with what they've been given. God, redeem us all. And here we pray. Amen.